So what does it mean to be a disciple? Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, a lot of problems can be solved if we just go back to the basics. Back to the basics. Being disciples, making disciples. We are here to know God and make God known. We are here to be disciples and make disciples. But what does it mean to be a disciple? How do we make disciples? Why is that so fundamental, so foundational, so critically important in the life of the church today? And friends, if we get this right, how will it affect everything else. I'll tell you, it will in a massive way. Welcome to the Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown, and here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Bottom of the hour, we're going to have a a guest, a man of prayer, pastor who's going to share some neat things with us in a new book he's written. The rest of the show, we're going to devote to the subject of being disciples, making disciples. What does it mean? How do we do it? Maybe you're in ministry and you found some things to be very effective with excellent long-term fruit. Maybe you're one who says, I I need discipling, or how do I get it, or what does it mean? How does it work out in the local church? We want to talk about these things. We want to be practical. And we'll start with a scripture, and then I want to illustrate to you how crazy things are in the body today. But In Matthew, the 28th chapter, Jesus has risen from the dead, and his disciples see him. They're still trying to process everything, overwhelmed with his death, his resurrection, see him. Still, can this even be true? And he ends up spending 40 days with them before his ascension to heaven. But look at what it says in Matthew, chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to the Galilee, to the mountain Yeshua had designated, When they saw him, they worshiped, but some wavered, still just overwhelming. And Yeshua came up to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, or really in Greek, as you go, make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So think of that for a moment. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. As the Son of God, he clothed himself in human flesh, became fully man while remaining fully God, laid aside his divine prerogatives on this earth, dies, rises from the dead, and the Father gives him all authority in heaven and earth. Whatever we do, when we're doing his will, we have his authority. Oh, we submit to earthly authorities. We can't tell the policeman, get out of my way. I'm going to preach. I'm going to go 100 miles an hour and break the law. No, we we submit to earthly law and earthly authorities unless they tell us to disobey God. But in the preaching of the gospel, in the setting captives free, 
and the bringing the message to places where it's never gone before, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. It's very powerful to meditate on that. And he's with us always, wherever we go. That's why I said, I'm with you always. Wherever you go, whatever happens, he's with us always. But we're here on a mission. We're here for a purpose. We're here as we go, as we go through this world, to make disciples of the nations, to baptize them, to immerse them. And then Jesus says, teaching them everything I have commanded you. So we're going to come back to that, what it actually means, how it works itself out. But let me say this first. Life is short. I'm about to be 66 years old. I feel like a kid on the inside. By God's grace, I'm healthy and strong and vibrant. But almost 66, right? Even though I've lived to 100, that means I'm, I'm, I'm two-thirds in already, right? Even if I lived that long. So uh, life is short. On the one hand, yeah, it's a long time to be here. On the other hand, here today, gone tomorrow. Carmen, remember Carmen? Christian recording artist, really cutting edge. Some of his music blessed me tremendously years back. He passed away now, 65. The big news in the media, Rush Limbaugh passing away today at 70. We knew he was very ill. I happened to mention him in passing on the radio, talking about voices on the right, voices on the left, and just prayed for a miracle for him. He's gone at 70. And a friend that we knew from Long Island many, many years ago, maybe 76, somewhere around there, just got word that he passed away today. Life is short. We need to weigh the times that we have, the opportunities that we have. And we, live, we need to live with sobriety before the Lord. Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may gain, that we may acquire a heart of wisdom, or that we, we may bring a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Not living in some paranoid thing, Jesus is coming any second, and, I, and for some that's a paranoid thing. For others that's a wonderful thought. But for others you're paranoid because you can't even think about tomorrow. And, and for others, like, okay, well, I, I, when I sat down with the family, we just kind of like played a game. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I should be knocking on doors, preaching the gospel. No, don't, don't get all worked up where, where you can't even breathe and enjoy Sabbath rest and enjoy family. God's given us all things to enjoy, richly so. First Timothy 6, it says so. You, can, you sit and enjoy a beautiful sunset. Sit and enjoy quiet time with a spouse. Yes, we, we are in this world. But look at the overall course of your life and ask, does my life make sense in the light of eternity? The choices I'm making, the decisions I'm making, the direction I'm going, does it make sense in the light of eternity? And does my life have the earmarks of a disciple? Does my life have have the markings of a disciple that someone can look at me and recognize I'm a follower of Jesus? Look at me and recognize that, that my life is set apart for divine service. Even as I'm in this world, whatever your job, whatever your family responsibilities, single, married, whoever you are, young, old, do we have the marks of a disciple? I'll explain more of what that means in a moment. But can I, can I be just absolutely candid with you? I mean, you know I am. You, you know that's what you see is what you get. I have just been so grieved over the state of the body. I, I've been so grieved over so much carnality, so much sin, and it's not, uh, please understand, 
it's not that I get grieved, like, look at how holy I am and how unholy everyone is. Now, this is us. We're all family in that regard. The, the, a scandal for one hits all of us. Pain for one, loss for one hits all of us. And I, I, maybe it's naive, but I, I just believe we can be better in God. I just believe we're called to be better. I just believe this whole thing about being disciples is something that's supposed to be reality and not just talk. And when I just see so much carnality and so much junk and so much immaturity and so much crassness and anger and hatred, we were talking yesterday about the world knowing us by our hate more than by our love. It grieves me. And sometimes when I'll see people attacking me online, I get burdened, not because it's me. I'm, I'm called to be a lightning rod. The attack, it comes my way. That's just natural. But I get grieved because of the state of the body. I get grieved because it's like we're not supposed to be like this. I read the New Testament. I know we have problems. I know we have issues. I know there are ups and downs. I know we're all flawed. I know that only God in his essence is good. I understand all of that. And yet I see that we're called to walk worthy of our calling, that we're called to live in such a way that that we don't bring reproach to the name of the Lord. In fact, that by our lifestyle, that the world is one to the Lord. When, when they see our light, when they see our conduct, when they watch us, when they're close to us, they see there's something different about us in a positive way. And, and when we behave just like the world, it, it hurts me, not because I'm the one being attacked in some cases, but because of the state of the body. Here, let, let me give you an example. And, and then we're going to look at some really interesting dictionary definitions of disciple, look at some very interesting quotes from early Jewish literature, because there was such an emphasis put on making Talmudim, making disciples. But I, I posted an article yesterday which said it's time to, to move on with our focus. It's time to get our focus off Trump. And I said, look, whatever happens, court cases heard by the Supreme Court and Trump's potential political future, if he has any political future or ambition or whatever it is, that's not, we've been so focused on Trump for five years. He's been such a major and divisive character for good, for bad, whatever, but every side talking about him constantly. And because he was so connected to evangelicals, I was constantly writing about Trump related issues. And there were many things to sort out and work through. But I said, Hey, look, let's just refocus. Let's, let's refocus. If this doesn't apply to you, fine. But I think for many, it does. Let's refocus and, and, and step back and say what matters most and have we been caught up with other things. So here's one response to this article. I got blasted by a bunch of people. I don't, really don't read comments, but I, I looked, looked at a few. Uh, yeah, the doc is anti-Trump. So voting for him twice, I'm anti-Trump. He's shown that he thinks that when he was in the White House that people somehow forgot about Jesus. That is ridiculous. Of course, never said forgot about Jesus, but just we got consumed with other things and looked to Trump in an unhealthy way. Excuse me, quote, doc, in quotes. But stop trying to insult our intelligence. Like you think folks can't walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. We are quite capable to support the right man in the White House, 2016, 2020, and quite believe in Jesus, knowing that God put him there 2016, 2020. And I believe one of them to remain 2020, 2024, but the devil comes to steal, Gospel of John 10. I'm tired of the doc besmirching us. Lost respect for you, doc. So each time, you know, insulting me with quotes, the Lord rebuke you in Jesus' name. Lord, have mercy on this person. They're probably sincere, but very misguided. Here's someone rebuking me in Jesus' name for saying we need to focus on Jesus more. I mean, can you imagine the state of things? 
And that's just, that's just one among many. Now, many others were saying, absolutely, this is necessary. Thank you for writing this. We agree. God's saying the same thing to me, etc. But can you imagine someone rebuking you in Jesus' name for encouraging people to, to focus more on Jesus and to not be so focused on Trump and what's going to happen? No, March, no, April, no, what? You watch, it's going to happen, that's going to happen. No, no, let's focus on Jesus and get back to the basics. I get rebuked in Jesus' name for doing that. Now, the reason I bring that to your attention is stuff like this is all over. This kind of carnality, this kind of confusion. And by the way, by the way, there was massive prayer for the election. The devil didn't steal. God's not like, oh man, I, I want to trump in another four. Yeah, I tried. God's not saying, I, I really tried. I know you're all praying to me, and I really, but the devil was too strong. No, the devil was not too strong. Anything got stolen, got stolen because God allowed it to be. Anyway, we'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends. 866-34-TRUTH. I'll get to your calls in a little while, but I, I want to put up another screenshot for you. Just to, to give you, this is, I run into this all the time. Here's someone posting again in response to me saying, hey, let's, let's really get our focus on Jesus, that we've been distracted from a lot of issues. So here's a guy responding. No, I think not. And I think you're an arrogant blank. If you tell me what you think I need, Brown, and you have never met me, lol, lol. Pretty relevant blank, huh? Wow, I despise presumption at any level. And you have espoused the height in your squeaky small blank diatribe. I mean, it's real gross stuff he wrote. A little self-loathing might help you with your attitude problem. There was a whole lot less where this came from. Grow some dot, dot, dot. So that's a pretty crass, if I put the whole text in, real crass, junk type post. You say, well, why do you post? Okay, here's the guy's bio. I just clicked out of curiosity. Someone sent me, hey, look at some of this. I just read some of the comments. Here's, here's the guy's bio. Look at this description here of, of himself. This is, this is what he says about himself. It's all about Jesus. Jesus had joy is an immutable truth. I will be with Jesus one day. That's the guy that posted the garbage post I just read to you. My point is we may have a lot of people professing faith in Jesus. We may have a lot of people talking about Jesus. We may have a lot of people going to churches, but we don't have a lot of disciples because disciples don't act like that. It's not how disciples act. So a disciple is, is a student, is a follower. It is a devoted follower. It, it is someone who now gives themselves to follow a particular person. In this case, we're talking about being disciples of Jesus. So here are some leading Greek dictionaries, New Testament dictionaries. And I want you to see the definitions because the, the, the Greek word for learn is connected to the Greek word for disciple. And the same with the Hebrew words for learn and disciple. So one dictionary says this, one who engages in learning through instruction from another, pupil, or apprentice. Let me read that again. The Greek word mathetes. One who engages in learning through instruction from another. Pupil. Apprentice. All right, let's look at another definition in this same dictionary. And this is the one that would apply even more now to the larger meaning of disciple. 
one who is rather constantly associated with someone who has a pedagogical reputation or a particular set of views, disciple, adherent. So you're constantly associated with someone who has a teaching, mentoring reputation or a particular set of views, translated then disciple or adherent. And that's how it's used frequently in the New Testament. So to be a disciple of Jesus, you are constantly associated with him. You are modeling your life after him. You are spending quality time with him. He's here on this earth, right? Going back 2,000 years. You're sitting at his feet. You're listening to him. You're learning from him. You're learning of him. You're learning from him. And, and now you're practicing what he's preaching. That's what a disciple does. It's not just an observer, a spectator. No, the disciple is, is a student seeking to emulate the life of his master or teacher. All right, let's look at another definition. So Mathetes, follower, often a disciple who is a believer and close follower, though other less committed relationships are indicated. Pupil, student, one tutored, implying a closer relationship than mere information. So to be somebody's disciple, here, think of it like this. If, if you're just going to a church service and hearing somebody preach, you could hardly be called a disciple just by doing that unless you were absorbed with that teaching. You were caught up in that teaching. You were modeling yourself after that teacher. And the course of your life was to put those things into practice and to grow in those ways. Right, let's look at a, another definition. We've got a couple more for you. And then I want to read some rabbinic writings to you. Here's a, another these are all authoritative, highly respected uh, Greek New Testament dictionaries. Mathetes, a person who learns from another by instruction, whether formal or informal, disciple, pupil, with the quote, no pupil is greater than his teacher, but every pupil, when he has completed his training, will be like his teacher. Every pupil. So we are devoted pupils, devoted students of the master, teacher, Jesus, listening to his words, absorbing them in our lives, following his example, seeking to live as he lived. In other words, our whole life is caught up in being that and doing that. One more, one more definition just to put up for you. I think I've got one more, do I? Um, and uh, so Talmud. Talmud is the Hebrew word for student. Now here's what's really interesting, and, and I've got a screenshot for those watching from the Safaria website. I searched for the word Talmud. It only occurs once in the Bible. It's an interesting occurrence in Chronicles. It only occurs once in the entire Bible. And it is a, a meaning of, of, of student, learner, okay? And the root lamad is, is to study. Talmud is that which is studied. That's the basic, the, the main sources of, of rabbinic foundational literature, the Talmud. But, but notice this. In the Safaria website, where you can search basically a massive database of, of rabbinic literature, uh, and a lot of it translated into English, otherwise in Hebrew, Aramaic, Talmud or related forms occur over 47,000 times. In other words, this is a major emphasis of early rabbinic Judaism, that you sit at the feet of your teacher, that you absorbed in studying the literature day and night, and in rabbinic Judaism, the tremendous emphasis is on learning, but then this learning should cause you to live a certain way. So 
there's a famous tractate or book of the Mishnah called Pirkei Avot, Chapters of the Fathers or Ethics of the Fathers. And it starts off with the notion of Moses receiving an oral law on Mount Sinai. Of course, I differ with that very strongly, but this is foundational rabbinic Judaism. Moses received the Torah at Sinai, transmitted it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets to the men of the great assembly, which would be days of like Ezra and Nehemiah around then. Uh, they said three things. Be patient in the administration of justice. These are three of their famous sayings. Raise many disciples and make offense around the Torah. So, raise many disciples and make offense around the Torah. Make offense around the Torah would mean if, if the law says you can't go over 60 miles an hour, they'll say don't go over 40 to make sure you don't even get close to doing it. But notice one of the key things that they said was raise up many disciples. All right, let's, uh, let's go down to uh, the fourth verse. It's called the Mishnah within the Mishnah. Uh, Yosef ben Yozer, a man of Zereda, and Yosef ben Yochanan, a man of Jerusalem, received the oral tradition from them. So this is, again, the, from Shimon the Righteous and, Ant- and Antigonos, Antigonos. Excuse me. Yosef ben Yozer used to say, let the house be a house of meeting for the sages and sit in the very dust of their feet and drink in their words with thirst. So this is the, this is the concept of being a disciple. You sit at the feet of your teacher and you drink in the words. You drink them in. So it's, again, it's an absorbing of, of what they're saying. It is a, it, it is, your life is devoted to learning from them and then putting these things into practice. Uh, and then uh, the sixth verse or Mishnah, Yehoshua ben Parach and Nittai the Arbalite received the oral tradition from them. Now, again, I don't believe in the full transmission of oral tradition that the rabbis do, but I'm just giving you insight in terms of these beliefs. Yeshua ben Parachi used to say, appoint for thyself a teacher and acquire for thyself a companion and judge all men with the scale weighted in his favor. So you, you are compassionate in your judgment of others, but get a teacher and acquire a companion. A companion is a study partner. Uh, I was listening to a rabbi the other day saying that he's had the same study partner the last 25 years. So weekly or daily, they've engaged in study rabbinic texts. But again, it's a lifestyle of learning and then uh, one more section, uh, chapter 6, verse 6, or chapter 6, Mishnah 6, to be precise. Uh, I, I want you to see, it, it's a long passage, uh, but I, I want you to get a feel for the idea of how learning was considered to, to be transformative to the whole life. In other words, it was not just intellectual information. Greater is learning Torah than the priesthood and than royalty, for royalty is acquired by 30 stages and the priesthood by 24, but the Torah by 48 things, by study, attentive listening, proper speech, by an understanding heart, by an intelligent heart, by awe, by fear, by humility, by joy, by attending to the sages, by critical give and take with friends, by fine argumentation with friends, by clear thinking, by study of scripture, by study of Mishnah, by a minimum of sleep, by a minimum of chatter, by a minimum of pleasure, by a minimum of frivolity, by a minimum of preoccupation with worldly matters, by long suffering, by generosity, by faith, in the sages, by acceptance of suffering, uh, who recognizes, uh, learning of Torah is also required by one who recognizes his place, who rejoices in his portion, who makes offense about his words, who takes no credit for himself, who is loved, who loves God, who loves his fellow creatures, who loves righteous ways, who loves reproof, who loves uprightness, who keeps himself far from honors, who does not let his heart become swelled on account of his learning, who does not delight in giving legal decisions, who shares in the bearing of a burden with his colleague, who judges with the scales weighted in his favor, who leads him on to truth, who leads him on to peace, who composes himself at his study, who asks 
and answers, who listens to others and himself adds to his knowledge, who learns in order to teach, who learns in order to practice, who makes his teacher wiser, who is exact in what he has learned, and who says the thing in the name of him who said it. Thus you have learned, everyone who says the thing in the name of him who said it brings deliverance into the world, as it had said, Esther told the king in Mordecai's name. Okay, you say, wow, that was a lot. The point is, the idea is not just learning information, but taking in truth that transforms your life. How much more do we do this now as disciples, not just of a book or of a teaching, but of Yeshua, Jesus himself, that we are absorbed with his life. We are absorbed with following him. The purpose of our life is to know him and make him known. The purpose of our life is to be with him and be like him. Anyway, we're going to take a break from this for a moment. I want to bring on Pastor Joseph Parker, and then we come back. Stay with us. Those are on hold. Stay with us. I want to get your comments about discipleship on the other side of this segment. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends, on the Line of Fire. Boy, just getting reports from friends in Texas and and what they're dealing with there and folks in other parts of the country. I I know there's some really rough weather affecting many of you. And if, if you are listening somehow live or watching live, you've got cell phone service or you've got internet on or your radio station is still working. Glad to be talking with you. May God's grace be there to help and and help those really struggling. So as I have gone down to be with American Family Association a couple of different times in Tupelo, Mississippi, I've had the joy of joining some of their radio hosts on American Family Radio. They carry the line of fire on Sunday afternoons for a couple of hours. And I've been on with Pastor Joseph Parker, and he's, he's got a really neat ministry. He has been pastoring for, what is it? Yeah, most of the last 45 years, currently serving with his wife, leading Bethlehem AME Church in Winona, uh, Mississippi. And um, he serves as the host of the radio broadcast, The Hour of Intercession. So it's it's... Share things and then prayer. Share things in prayer. Gentle heart, great heart for the Lord, involved in, in pro-life. Helps undergird a lot of what American Family Association does in prayer. Has a new book that he wrote. I said, hey, man, we, we got to get you on the air, uh, even for a few minutes to be my guest. So, uh, Joseph, great to have you with us today. Dr. Brown, great to be with you today. Uh, you know, when, when we were on the last time, I was so pleased I remembered your first name, only to realize I remembered it wrong. So that's... Joseph Parker was a famous preacher in the 1800s, uh, and, and he's got a great quote I've always remembered. So that I always feel like, yeah, I, I know Joseph Parker. So thanks for being with us. Hey, just tell us quickly, as a pastor, how is it that, that this ministry of prayer has played such a foundational role, not just in your private life, but in your public ministry? Well, you know, Dr. Brown, I think of this, that... Uh, Prayer, you know, the Word of God tells us to pray without ceasing in First Thessalonians chapter 5. And I've had the privilege and honor of hosting this broadcast, the hour of intercession that I do, uh, for about seven years. And 
I would say that prayer has been a foundational part of my life as a believer for uh, ever since I came to know the Lord, but I've been steady growing in my understanding of the fact that prayer is so much bigger, so much more critical to everything in the kingdom of God. And I believe the most fruitful people in all of the world in the kingdom of God are people that really know how to seriously pray and get things done through their prayer life. So prayer is really critical to everything in the kingdom of God. Yeah, it really is. And how is it that with all the years of ministry you've done, pastoring can be very stressful, American Family Association, on the front lines of a lot of culture battles, culture wars, you seem to have a gentle spirit about you and a peace about you. Is that the fruit of your prayer life? <laughs> well, I would think so, uh, as you perceive it that way. But uh, I, I would say that without question, one of the wonderful things about our life of praying as well as the study of the Word of God, and I guess I would say this too, the study of God's Word is a form of prayer, a form of communing with God, and it's very helpful for believers to understand that. But our time in walking with God is clearly a way whereby the Spirit of God molds and shapes us to become more and more like Christ. And so our intimate walk with Christ is, of course, is a critical part of us being faithful disciples. And so I think it works on me and all the rest of us to become more like Christ. Yeah, uh, and that's what it's all about, being like Jesus. And that's been a focus of, of the show before you came on today, what it means to, to be disciples. So so tell our audience about this book that you've written. Uh, what prompted you to do it? What are our readers going to get out of it? Well, you know, the title of the book, of course, is A Pastor's Note, God Calls the Church to Stand Boldly for Life. And I would say without question, it's a work of discipleship, because I think one of the great challenges in the church today is people who say they know the Lord, but they've They've not been discipled. They've been not been taught how to walk with God, to, to walk with Him in prayer, to listen to His Word and obey it. And so the book is a compilation of articles I wrote over a period of years that address the life issue pretty head-on and aggressively. Uh, I'm very much of the opinion that the Church is way too laid back on the issue of, abor- of, of standing for life and against abortion, and even churches that consider themselves strong pro-life churches, typically there's all so much more we can and should be doing to address the life issue. And so my hope is that this book, and I'm believing that God will use this book to stir pastors in particular, but the church as a whole to recognize that we all must become much more aggressive about standing for life and standing against abortion. So in other words, it's not just a matter of we cast our vote every two years or every four years and then we hope the Supreme Court will do something. This is really our job on the ground. Do you think if maybe one-tenth of the churches in America took this seriously, that the pro-life movement would revolutionize the whole country? Well, I think that definitely could and would happen. And, of course, we'd hope that there'd be much greater response, of course, than that. Of course, of course. You know, Dr. Brown, I think of this, that the need for us as believers as it relates to being disciples with the life issue, but this is true for any issue, is that we really seek the heart of God in prayer and in the study of His Word, but there's, there's, an, there's always an assignment at the end of our prayers. I think every pastor and every church, every believer should say, Lord, show me what you want me to do about the life issue. Show me what you'd have me to do. And I believe God has an assignment for absolutely every congregation to help address the issue. I think too often people may pray, but they're not listening for the assignment because there's so much work that still needs to be done, 
that is not being done by the people of God. So give, give me one example, maybe one, one section or chapter or article from your book, in terms of practical action that, that every local church could take for the cause of life, to, to combat the evil of abortion. Okay. Well, the initial chapter, amongst other things, touches on the critical importance of the work of pregnancy clinics. Well, pregnancy clinics, of course, are wonderful ministries in our culture today that do a great work of actually do a lot of evangelism and discipleship and pastoral ministry. And I'm of the opinion that there should be so much support from local churches for pregnancy clinics that they don't have to do fundraisers. They should, mm. Churches should put them in their budgets, do fundraisers for them, send volunteers, send baby items. Well, sadly, many pastors, they don't even know what a pregnancy clinic is and mm. couldn't refer you to the closest one. Now, some do, but many don't. So educating themselves about this work, because I think of the pregnancy clinic as being not, I wouldn't, I don't want, I don't care for the term parachurch. I think it's an extension of the church, and typically the directors are people with a big heart for what they do, who are great uh, representatives to educate people about the need to get passionately involved with the work that pregnancy clinics do. But that's just one small thing. Churches should send lots of volunteers to pregnancy clinics as well. They should be flooded with baby items as opposed to having to beg the community and community churches for such. That would just be one thing. Um, I think of also, for example, one of the uh, chapters deals with what I call the Dear Parent Letter. It's simply a letter that explains that if a woman wants to keep her baby, it's, a, it's against the law for a boyfriend or a dad or a mom or anyone to coerce that girl to get an abortion. Lots of people don't know that's the law, Dr. Brown. And so sadly, many abortions have happened, even though the mom wanted to keep her baby, a dad or a mom or a boyfriend or a husband forced it. And again, that can be prosecuted. But again, many people, if they knew the law, they would not force it. Mm. And um, so I think of a, an instance that ha- incident that happened. I got a phone call one day in my office right here in Tupelo, Mississippi. A 17-year-old girl called from another city across the country and said, I want to... I want to keep my baby, and my my parents have scheduled me to get an abortion tomorrow. Can you help me? Well, all I did was I emailed her the letter. Didn't hear from her the next day right away, so out of concern, called. When I called, she and her mom were at the abortion clinic. She'd gotten the letter, had printed it off, but she hadn't showed her mom. I encourage her, please show your mom the letter. Well, later in the day, we heard back from her. She showed her mom the letter. Mom was not happy. But the abortion clinic workers knew they could not legally do the abortion because the mother said she didn't want it. They mm. did do an ultrasound on the 17-year-old and found that she was carrying twins. Wow. So the Holy Spirit used the letter to save not just one baby, but two. But just think if, if lots of believers got a hold of that letter and sent it to local high schools and police stations and local youth directors, how many babies could be saved? Because really? knowing the law actually can save lots of babies in our culture today. So those are, just, those are just a couple of small things, but there are many other things believers can do to help get involved, to help stand for life in our culture. Got it. Let, let me ask you this candidly, and I've, I've said, you know, you've got a gentle, gracious spirit, but you are, you are tenacious for life in every way. I, I've gotten very grieved with controversy over the recent election and, and people very upset with those that voted for Trump, very upset because he was pro-life and, and Joe Biden is is pro-abortion, et cetera. And, 
and they're all outraged. And I've, I've said to them, well, if this is such a big deal to you, I, I, I voted for a pro-life candidate. Yes, I said, but if, if this is such a big deal to you, tell me the abortion clinics. Name for me the abortion clinics in your city. Name for me the pregnancy crisis. And I've asked those questions because most are indignant about this, but actually aren't doing anything the rest of the year. In all, in all honesty, my brother, does that strike you as, as hypocritical? Well, you know, I guess, Dr. Brett, I wouldn't use the word hypocritical, but I guess I would use the word unin- tragically uninformed. Okay. They're clearly believers should be as pat, even more passionate about learning about what they can do to help end abortion uh, as they are passionate about voting for the right candidate. Now, clearly, voting for the right candidate, one that is pro-life, is critical. But that's one very small thing yes. that believers can do. The church could end the tragedy of abortion in our culture. The church could do it. But we have to decide that with God's help, we're going to do it. And so doing our part is critically important to everything within in the kingdom of God as far as addressing the issue as God would have us to. I very much believe so. Yeah, and I'm so, I'm so glad you've put this out because it's the practical steps for pastors, for individual believers— uh, tell us the name of your book again and where folks can get it. Again, it's A Pastor's Notes, God Calls the Church to Stand Boldly for Life, and they can get it at afastore.net, or they can call uh, 1-877-927-4917, the AFA Bookstore, and get it as well. All right, so, so those f- are a couple ways. All right, great. So, friends, check it out on the American Family Association website, A Pastor's Notes, Pastor Joseph Parker. Hey, my brother, thanks for for doing the work. Thanks for being faithful these many years. And and may God get your great readership. Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Brown. God bless. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I appreciate what Pastor Parker had to say. The whole pro-life movement is part of our discipleship, part of getting God's heart. People of prayer, people of the word, now putting that into action. So that's where we started today. What does it mean to be a disciple? Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples. Paul does not use the term in his letters because the Greek word methetes in the letters he was writing would have had a different connotation than what was intended when Jesus spoke about making disciples. But if you'll notice in the book of Acts, that that's just the way the believers are identified. The number of disciples grew, the number of disciples grew. Acts 11 in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's the first time that these disciples were called Christians, and that was apparently the outsiders looking at these Jews and Gentiles together, following this Christos, Christos guy, who was it? Just some name to them. So they mockingly called them like these Christ guys. It'd be as if I had a following and, and people were named Brownites or something like that. That's how the term Christian Appeared. Some of them called it Christian because they, they thought it was, it was Christos instead of Christos. It had no meaning of Messiah to them. But, but notice that, that Luke tells us in Acts 11 that the disciples, that's what they were, 
that's how he describes them, were first called Christians at Antioch. As you read elsewhere in Acts, the number of disciples grew. In other words, to be a believer is to be a disciple. That it wasn't like, oh, the disciple is the super saint. The disciple is really, really, you know, the disciple is like a missionary. I'm just a church. No, there, there was no such category as just a churchgoer. You were saved or lost, and if you were saved, you are called to be a disciple. And so that means you go back through the Gospels and read what Jesus says about disciples, leave everything, follow me. No, we don't all quit our jobs and, and, and all just sell our possessions, go on the mission field, but we all die to what hold, held us before, die to our old lives. We don't just add Jesus in. Oh, I'd like to have a better life. I'm going to add Jesus in and get rid of the guilt and bad feelings and just have good feelings. It's a lot deeper than that. It's the end of our old life and the beginning of a new life in God. And then we live to do his will. We're his. And our lives become absorbed with being with him. That's being a disciple. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go over to Nashville, Tennessee. Eliyahu, welcome to the line of fire. Can you hear me, Dr. Brown? Yeah, I can, loud and clear. Oh, sorry, I won't be so loud. Uh, no, that's good. That's, I'm, go ahead. I'm honored. Um, I've been watching you to and fro. Um, I've, I've, I've been seeing how you're standing up for morals and values for, you know, Christ. And so my, my vision of discipleship came when I was studying the scriptures from Genesis to the to Revelation, and I got to the book of Acts, and they were waiting in the upper room. They received the Holy Spirit as the first step. For me, this is my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. The next step, you know, um, there was a, a speech given by Peter. He's like, repent every one of you and be baptized in the name of Yeshua of Nazareth, Hanasri, and you shall receive the Ruach HaKodesh. At that time, 2000 uh, or 2000, 3000, I don't remember exactly, were baptized. The next step was that they that believed were gathered together daily at the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. I'm not, a, I'm not getting into communism first, um, but I think that there's something... I see so many churches closed now. You know, when we see the day approaching, we're supposed to gather more oft, and yet we have so many churches closed. Um, obviously denomination is not going to save any of us. It's not going to bring us together. Denomination has only brought us... Every, every man goes back to his own house in the book of Haggai when the temple of the Lord, Hashem, is left in ruins. So all these churches are closed down, and I understand we can do prayer from home, but we're supposed to gather ourselves together more often we see a day approaching. Yeah, so, so let me... I agree. Let me... Yeah, let, let, me, let me give you a thought. You know, as you're, as you're reading through Acts, uh, you, you did have gathering in the temple and things like that, but the main growth was house to house to house to house to house. And, and I think it's an interesting thing, uh, but, but I, I think a, a point to consider is that the shutdown as it continues should be getting us to think more about gathering in smaller groups. In other words, the... the the best way to make a disciple is not only be in a large group with worship and teaching. And that's great. I love those. I, I love corporate settings. I love big meetings. I, I love them. I love being in them, love ministering in them, receiving in them. But ultimately, is living life out together in a smaller setting and, and with close friendships and with, with smaller groups that are more intimate 
you can each grow. You can't really hide in that setting. If you're struggling, it's a place where you can open up. So that's the other thing. Let's take advantage of this when in many cases it's difficult to gather or the building you have to have distancing and things, you know, whatever that you're living by, in, in, you know, varies from state to state. Let's seize this moment to find other ways to really live this out because we should be getting together, absolutely, and finding ways and looking for creative ways to do it. Thank you for, for weighing in. I, I appreciate it. Um, Robert Coleman, famous professor, church growth specialist, dear, dear brother. I, I got to spend time with him years back when I served uh, as a visiting professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in, in Deerfield, Illinois, when he was a professor there in church growth missions and things like that. But famous books, you know, Master Plan of Evangelism, Master Plan of Discipleship, things, th those classic books. So he was telling me that he was a Methodist pastor. And the, the Methodists had circuits. In other words, you'd be responsible for several churches. So you'd have a circuit where you'd go maybe over a period of a month and you'd cover all the different churches. And you maybe go, so this one at this time, and then you travel on from there, get hours with this one, and so on. And there was one, just the way the schedule worked, where he would arrive on a Saturday. And he would, he would be with them on Saturday, the folks, the, the folks in the church, and they were farmers and things, and so he'd do community with them. He'd do chores with them, just hang out with the people, hang out with family, have meals with them, then do church service, and that congregation really grew and thrived, and new people got saved and so on, and so now they looked at him like, you're the expert on this. How'd you do this? You're the expert. It's like, I'm the expert? I did chores. I did farming chores. But they realized, ah, it was being together and living life together. Uh, I know students that have gone on missions trips with me, say, to India. So you've got the journey over there and the hanging out time. And, you know, obviously you're on, you know, just flying and stuff. But, but you know, in between the hangout time and then all the travel within India and then the meetings and the pouring your hearts out together and seeing God move and, and getting the times to talk and debrief. Something just happens that's very special doing that because you've experienced life in God together. And, and then I, I've noticed our school of ministry now is entirely online. We put our entire school on. If, and by the way, if you want a place to study at home, Fire School of Ministry, check it out, fireschoolofministry.com. Check it out. Enroll for one class and see if it interests you. Just audit one class if you want. If you don't even know if, how seriously you want to take classes, I, I think you'll be blown away by the content. Full audio classes as we taught them with full study guides, with ministry practicums to follow through on it. A, a really rich program. Two years and then plus if you want to take more classes. But when, when our school was at its biggest, I would do a third-year class, a mentoring class. And when the school's at its biggest, we had almost 1,200 full-time students. And, and maybe, oh, let's say, two, 200 were in the third year or whatever the number was. And, I, and, and we had all of our faculty. And then the students would put on a list who they, whose class they wanted to be in. Right? So that they'd have this list whose class they want to be in or whose, whose mentoring group they want to be in. And because I was the leader of the school and, and well-known and things, so I would always have the highest number. And then, you know, all the other faculty would get, but I could only take a certain number of those people. 
So let's say 30 wanted to be in my mentor group and I could only take 12. So we, we figure out 12 and then the others would be spread out with the other groups. So you think, you know, disappointed. I wanted to be in Dr. Brown's group. No, that, that all they, as soon as they are in another group and another leader spent quality time with them every week and, and, and they prayed together and they shared together and, and maybe they have meals together. They could care less about Dr. Brown. They, it didn't matter because they were in a situation of someone really pouring into them and being a mentor. And I would notice that when the students would be giving special appreciation, they'd always give the greatest appreciation to the one they spent the, the great time with. Oh, they'd appreciate this teaching or preaching or other things. It's like, yeah, we just will never forget those meals at your house. We'll never forget. There is something about living life together. And, and it's the essence of discipleship, us in the Lord, us with people that are pouring into our lives, us getting this, ingesting it as to who we are. So making disciples is not just preaching and handing someone over. It's, it's getting that one to know the Lord and then getting them vibrantly and vitally connected with Jesus so that your life revolves around doing his will. And you are constantly sitting at his feet, learning and communing with him in the course of our day, in the midst of all the other responsibilities we have, that's our focus. That's our desire. And when we live like that, people will be drawn to us. They'll see something in us that we want. Let us go and make disciples. Oh, and let's first be disciples.